there are times when I'm not all that interested in meanings, when I sort of lose it with having to put some kind of huge narrative and meta-construction over the squadrons of words which one uses to describe one's experience or describe one's reading or one's uh, overall systematizing of life. And today is one of those days when I'm a little bit sick of meanings. Uh, what I would like to tell is a story. It's another one of those stories. It's absolutely true, every single word of it. And it... Uh, it um, made an impression on me forever and ever and uh, created a kind of openness and fascination to, for imaginative fairy tales. And uh, we all have this drive and we all have a gravitation towards well-told tales and, uh, and uh, marvelous fables and uh, certainly in the Bible parables. And one of the opening parables of my life that uh, actually imprinted everything I've ever done and was, although it was changed and looked upon with uh, sort of delighted horror in later years, was um, my fascination as a young child in universal horror films of the 1930s and 40s. Now, I have to tell you how this interest began without psychoanalyzing it. I've certainly tried very hard, and I've got a lot of ideas, and I'm sure most of them are true, or none of them are. But in any event, let me tell you the story. Cousins says, I think, uh, very um, very well in, uh, in his last novel, Morning and Noon and Night, which I urge you to read. He's eager not to uh, project meanings onto his stories of his life, uh, which are really very interesting. And at one point he says, sort of, he throws it out in late 60s jargon. He says, I don't want to tell it like it is. He said, everybody today is telling everything like it is. I want to tell it as it is. Oh, he's a slight play on the expression, tell it like it is, tell it like it is. Uh, it's it's not, um, it's a play on a sort of late 60s cliche, but it's really, he, he's, he's reacting against people who are involved in some sort of either magical realism or overly impressionistic view of life, or trying to put some large construction on what they see, as in tell it like it is, but rather, he says, tell it as it was, actually tell the story. That in itself, to use his phrase is our uh, just representation. Actually, the phrase is from Samuel Johnson. And from a telling of a situation as it actually was, to the best of your memory and with the most talent you can summon and as much vividness as you can put, telling it as it was and as it is does all a service and provides what he calls a new acquist of fresh experience, which is a quotation from the conclusion of um, Samson Agonistes. Now, what happened was that I was... Uh, we were on a family trip on the Skyline Drive in Virginia, and my dad was doing a project for the National Geographic, a photo shoot of some kind, and we were along to help him model in this photo shoot. I don't remember what it actually concerned, but we stayed at a uh, state park, or it might have been a, a part of the Skyline Drive uh, system of, at those times, sort of very reasonable hotels that you could stay at. And uh, we were there on a Saturday night, in this uh, this uh, kind of um, U.S. government hotel. It was perfectly okay. And somehow, don't ask me how, somehow I had read in the newspaper or gotten a hold of something that maybe I'd seen it on a television show that week. But I had learned, and this is, uh, this is uh, the uh, fall of... Uh, of uh, 1961. No, 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 I lie. The fall of 60, late 1959, right in there. I'm between the fourth and the fifth grade. And uh, I had read that uh, uh, late on a Saturday night, they were going to show a movie called The Wolfman 
Well, uh, my ears pricked up in all my uh, uh, nine-year-old glory, the Wolfman, and I pled and I pled with my parents to let me stay up. There was a television in the kind of smoking room or lounge downstairs which people, guests could watch. And I pled with my uh, dad to let me stay up to see The Wolfman. I'd never seen a universal horror film. I wouldn't have used the word, but The Wolfman, that just got everybody going. Me, every, Everybody inside me got going. So I persuaded my dad, and he, he, he let me stay up. And he took me down around 12.45, and there it was. on the te- We turned it on, this flickering television, and it was Channel 9 from Washington coming out over the Shenandoah. And a pretty bad reception, but there it was, and shock theater started. There was a picture of the mummy I later learned with Lon Chaney and some lightning. There was no host like Dr. Paul Bearer, or, who was, I think, in uh, Raleigh, or in um, um, Zachary, the famous Zachary. Uh, uh, none of the usual late-night horror hosts. There was just the picture of the mummy and some thunder and some organ music, and on came the Wolfman with the Universal logo and the little plane going around the world, and we began to watch it and at first uh, big large Lon Chaney comes on and he's very American and very bluff and kind of funny and natural and I said this isn't very interesting although the credits with all the shadows and the music by Hans Salter as I later found out was very uh, eerie and also very intense and uh, they all go Evelyn Anchors and Lon Chaney and Evelyn Anchors sort of plain Jane girlfriend go to a a fair being held by gypsies in this little English village where Lawrence Larry Talbot has come back to claim his legacy. Father, played by Claude Rains, being the uh, the uh, reigning squire of the village and of uh, um, uh, Lon Chaney's family's noble home. And we saw this thing, and then Bela Lugosi comes on, and by that time I was just goosebumps. I'd never seen anything like it ever, ever, ever. And he sees the palm reader, sees a pentangle on her, on uh, the young woman's uh, palm, and immediately knows it's going to happen. He says, you must leave. And the mother played my Maria Uspenskaya, I soon learned, because my mom had a thing about the name. She was always saying, isn't it wonderful that Maria Uspenskaya is in the movie? <laughs> I don't think anyone knew who she was, but the name was interesting to pronounce. And the pen bang, the girl goes out into the fog and is killed by a wolf who is in fact Bela. That is the Bela Lugosi character's um, um, turned into a wolf. And the poor woman uh, is attacked and killed on the moor and out comes Lon Chaney with a, a kind of cane with a with a, a, a wolf, a silver wolf's head on it and he kills the, the uh, wolf and the wolf turns into Bela Lugosi and then Maria Uspenskaya the gypsy mother comes along and it's shocking and then suddenly the janitor came in and the janitor was very not nice and he said you have to go it's 1.30 we have to clear it there's nobody allowed here after 1 o'clock you'll have to go and I pled with him and my father even bless his heart as we say um, tried to reason with the janitor but the janitor said absolutely not no exceptions you have to go he obviously wanted to get home but he probably wanted to watch the wolfman that was my gut feeling even at the time that the janitor wanted to watch the wolfman too but he didn't want anyone to know about it so we were dismissed and I never forgot it it's one of those things at age 9 that that you you never forget your entire life you 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 uh you almost saw the wolfman and i didn't but it made a vast impression just a vast impression now 
Um, uh, a week later, now that I knew that there was such a thing called shock theater, that it was on, again, remember, this is uh, 59, 60, 61 in Washington, D.C. on Channel 9 at 1 o'clock Saturday mornings. You know, that's a big thing to, for your parents to let you stay up when you're that age to see a monster movie that they haven't seen that they more or less disapprove of, even if they're really nice and free and liberal. Uh, but they really aren't going to approve of it very much. And plus, if you have church the next morning, which most of us did in those days, most of us had church to go to at 10.30 or 11 or whatever it was, it did not serve the family business to stay up. But I worked again at it, finally got my dad to say he would even stay up with me because a week later it was listed as The Invisible Ray. Now, The Invisible Ray was a movie that my dad had seen, actually, back in 1935, so he had a kind of investment in that movie, and it had a scientific, uh, it was a science fiction horror film, so that sort of suited. So we, we stayed up again. This is one week after Skyline Drive. Now we're back in Georgetown with our little silly 11-inch or 9-inch, I think it was about 11-inch television set with bad reception, but there it was. And I stayed up with my father and we saw The Invisible Ray. Now, this is a movie that actually, when you watch it today, has a lot, you can say a lot about this movie. It's about a, a man who's obsessed with the notion of finding a, a great meteor that had plunged into the continent of Africa ages and ages ago, and he has found out where it is, and he gets an expedition to go, and they find it, and it has uh, martial properties. It can melt things when this isotope, when directed at a source, and he builds a kind of ray gun where the invisible ray can melt and destroy anything he wishes. However, of course, A, it infects him, and at night he glows in the dark, and a scene that one would never forget, and I've never forgotten it, is when uh, Bela Lugosi tries to find him because he knows he's in trouble, and uh, uh, and, and Boris Karloff has just discovered that he glows in the dark, that he's become radiated. And uh, for me, even at the time, it was devastating special effect. He touches his dog, and the dog dies. And he's just, he's glowing, not his clothes, but just his face and his hands. And uh, this uh, made a huge impression. And then uh, um, he directs the ray in front of the natives uh, to scare them at a large stone, and the stone melts. It's a kind of reverse science fiction science lab experiment a very simple effect i think but it looked extremely realistic sort of king kongish special effect from 1935 and that set me back and then of course at the end da 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 um, his mother is able to prevent him from going bad and while he starts killing people with this possessed infected radiation persona and using this horrible invisible ray with this ray gun uh, he uh, he finally uh, throws himself through a window and burns up and goes into the sen into the sen river now, what I didn't realize is that there was a rather controversial plot of extramarital interest regarding, um, uh, I believe her name was Stuart. I forget her first name. Uh, um, the uh, Gloria Stewart. No, no, not Gloria Stewart. It was someone else. But in any event, the 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 um, assisting actor who played uh, the wife of Boris Karloff begins to carry on, although it's not her fault, with a young sort of Englishman who's sort of on the make, and it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth. I'm strange it got through, but but none of that. All I saw was Boris. Karloff Karloff glowing in the dark and the ray melting the meteor, the, the stone. And there was a sci-fi section in which Boris Karloff, looking like almost like a robot, comes in and shows a bunch of skeptical scientists. I think Beulah Bondi may even be in it, but a bunch of skeptical scientists, a film that he has made through his uh, m machines that can isolate light rays, a film by which he he's able to... Uh, to show the passage of the meteor from the planet Jupiter all the way past uh, past Mars and uh, 
and uh, um, I think actually it's much further out. It's this Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and it plunges into the continent of Africa. You see an explosion, and the special effects are very good. And that made an impression because I said, mm, aliens or something about outer space. So the invisible ray, while it's pretty lame and doesn't know whether it's a science fiction movie or a horror movie, does star Boris Karloff, and it does have Bela Lugosi saying the great thing when they're in the desert, uh, in the jungle, doing their experiments, and before Boris Karloff has found his precious meteor. Beulah Bondi, I think, turns to the Bela Lugosi character and says, Well, Doctor, and what have you found out today? And he says, Oh, only that the sun is the mother of us all. <laughs> that the sun is the mother of us all. Well, um, with lines like that, uh, there is a God. I mean, let's face it, the invisible ray. But definitely, uh, that was my dad's last time he ever uh, stayed up with me because he had a busy life and things he wanted to do and things he did. And he was often away at a farm that we had in Maryland. And, and sometimes I could inveigle staying in with my friend Lloyd Fonville and didn't have to go there and do work. And uh, so most Saturdays, actually, as it turned out, I was able to stay in and see shock theater. Now, the one that really turned the tide. Here we'd seen 15 minutes of the Wolfman. Abort, abort, abort. Then we'd seen the Invisible Ray, which was kind of a mixed uh, genre environment. And then the next week, and this is every week. It was every week for like two years. Every single week. That's why I've seen every single Universal horror film that you can see, with maybe one exception, which was just a matter of, as it were, luck. But they showed the House of Frankenstein. Now, House of Frankenstein, I was soon after, here I'm 10 years old, 1944 this film is made, and it stars Bela Lugosi, and, and a whole part, it has a uh, it has Dracula, played by John Carradine. It has uh, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange. It has a mad scientist, Dr. Niemann, who is, of course, in this case, played, thank God, by Boris Karloff. And um, it has the Wolfman, uh, played uh, Larry Talbot, played by Lon Chaney Jr. And two or three young, pretty, sort of uh, backups girls to represent their various love interests. What I remember about House of Frankenstein is the very beginning when Boris Karloff is in the prison and there's a terrible thunderstorm outside and he's lecturing to his hunchbacked assistant in the jail, J. Carol Nash. Friend Daniel, if you plant the head, the skull of a monkey into the brain of a man, you will... And the... Uh, and the uh, prison is destroyed by lightning, and out they go. And then I remember the the uh, effects with uh, Dracula, which were at that point really pretty pathetic. When the uh, the creature would uh, Dracula would sort of fold up in a kind of uh, not convincing um, kind of blob and become a bat. And we just thought we could do much better in our own movie making. But that's another podcast. In any event, uh, House of Frankenstein has a fabulous ending to a little boy in which Dr. Nemo having uh, resurrected the Frankenstein monster played by Glenn Strange, who would later be on Gunsmoke, as you remember. Um, the Frankenstein monster goes berserk and misunderstands what he's supposed to do as the villagers, always the villagers from the town of Vasaria. This is all from memory, troops. Uh, and uh, they attack Castle Frankenstein and Dr. Niemann is uh, wounded and the Frankenstein monster, out of fealty, carries uh, Boris Karloff in his arms, but he carries him in the wrong direction. And Boris Karloff uh, very impotently says, no, not, not that way, the quicksand, quicksand, not that way. But sadly, uh, he cannot deter the inexorable path of the Frankenstein monster, and they are both buried in quicksand, and they sink to their deaths 
in quicksand, and the villagers watched them triumphantly. Of course, you and I know that uh, the Frankenstein monster is indestructible. Now, that's the Wolfman. Abort, abort. That's Invisible Ray. Not quite got it yet. Then House of Frankenstein comes along and, and blows us all out of the water. And from then, it was an unending parade and sequence of wonder. Every Saturday night, watching these movies, either alone or with my friend Lloyd, and everyone had something to offer. We, the music, the uh, makeup, the situations, these are all, of, of course, uh, Bettelheim fables of the triumph of good over evil and the exorcism of the evil count and the dead mummy that has to be destroyed again or the, the revivified um, tribute to pride, uh, the poor women who are always being um, carried away by the monsters into difficult situations, the uh, ambitious mad scientist who takes the powers that are not his, tries to see the Promethean fire of life. And of course, most seductively and always memorably, the infamous Count Dracula. Now, one of the things I have to tell you is that it was very amusing. Uh, these kind of memories stay with you forever. The kind of ads, ads that they'd have. The, the, uh, the ads at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning in Washington, D.C. were the graveyard of ads. And this is really funny when I tell you what they were. What do you think the ad was for like a year and a half? 50% of the ads in the segments when there was a, a break in the movie, and that would be at least four and five times, sometimes five times in an hour and a half or hour and 20 minute movie. You know what it was? It was the ad for the Jolly Green Giant Vegetable Canning Corporation. The Jolly Green Giant. In the valley of the Jolly Ho Ho Ho, Green Giant, good things from the valley. Eh, eh, valley of the Giant. Eh, Valley of the Jolly Green Giant, Green Giant. Well, these, I mean, could you believe it? That's what it was. So we were every uh, Monday, uh, Sunday morning at 1 a.m., every late Saturday night, in other words, uh, we were hearing endless ads for canned corn, canned peas, and even canned asparagus. And that's the honest truth to tell you, that the ads, occasionally I remember Pap's Blue Ribbon Beer, <coughs> Um, but it was almost overwhelmingly for canned vegetables. Now, boy, that's what's called the graveyard. The poor Jolly Green Giant uh, company did not get their money's worth <laughs> at that hour, I can tell you what. But uh, one of the uh, climaxes of the whole situation was to see the original Dracula. Um, Lloyd and I saw it together, and it made an indelible impression. Because, as you may know, in the 1931 Dracula, which is very static, and it's played, uh, it's uh, based on a stage play that is very static because it's a stage play play. And um, the uh, last uh, three quarters of the movie Dracula are basically like a film stage play. And although Bela Lugosi is in it, Van Helsing, you know too much to live. And uh, I know the whole script. I know it backwards and forwards. I think I can recite the entire script. It reminds me of the broken battlements of my own castle in Transylvania. And then, uh, ooh, Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. Then poor Jonathan Harker, played by Dwight Fry, says, Why, uh, yes. The spider is spinning its web for the unwary fly. The blood is the life, Mr. Renfield. The blood is the life. Well, between the uh, lines like that, 
I just think he's so romantic, the way he says, it reminds me of the broken castle, of my own castle in Transylvania. Oh, I just think he's wonderful. I mean, it goes on and on. <laughs> What's that? It's coming from the hatchway. Well, I mean, the whole thing is an absolute stand-up if you choose to see it that way. And yet, if you choose to see the first uh, 25 minutes where he comes, uh, poor uh, Dwight Fry comes on his carriage into the inn, the country inn, where he is told uh, uh, to put a, a, a crucifix in his hand, and the woman, uh, the gypsy woman, or uh, Carpathian mountaineer lady who puts it in his hand says, uh, take this, if only for your mother's sake. I mean, these were all sent up later in Dracula Dead and Loving It by Mel Brooks, and obviously in his young Frankenstein. Obviously, Mel Brooks has the same uh, interest in these movies because these are letter-perfect uh, parodies, especially Young Frankenstein. However, the actual movie is very, very haunting. He gets there, you know, he arrives. Uh, you have Carla Limel, the I think the daughter or the granddaughter or maybe the sister of the producer, Carl Limel. Carla saying, uh, reading from the Baedeker, you know, and um, about the the Piedmont and the foothills of the Transylvanian Alps, and you have this scene in the in the courtyard of the stable, and it's very... And then the, he meets the coach, and Bela Lugosi plays the dark coachman, but you don't know he's Dracula. Uh-huh. And then they finally get there, and uh, uh, the castle is fantastic, and the scene is unbelievable, and he says to him, uh, Lugosi says, I am Dracula. And then he says, well, I don't know what became of my baggage, and, well, with all this... I thought I was in the wrong place. Now, whether it's a mat shot or whether it's a set, and I think it's mostly a set, the whole entrance, the coming, the wolves, the howling of the wolves, the, the uh, Walpurgisnacht uh, thing, uh, can't you see? I mean, it's just full of his... It's, it's very archetypal, and it's brilliant. And then there are a lot of close-ups throughout the film which sort of break up the static character of the theatricality of Bela Lugosi's face with eye-pinpoint lighting on his open, wide-opened eyes, and they're very effective. And the stairs, although today they seem ridiculous, obviously, they're not to me. They never will be, and they weren't then. Uh, we did realize that it got a little bit uh, boring about halfway through. But uh, what I want to tell you is that Dracula made an impression. It sort of opened up the whole thing. And Lloyd and I and Bill Bowman decided very soon after that that our life's work was to make these movies. And we did, in fact, make a version of Dracula called The, Ver uh, the, uh, uh, the Journal of uh, Jonathan Harker about three years later. And uh, it opened to acclamatory reviews uh, of the, all the local papers in Washington. And this, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, the fine print of it, the nitrate, was, uh, is, is hidden away somewhere. We don't exactly know where, but... In any event, we believe it exists. Dracula 1931 Shock Theater. Now, I haven't quite finished because uh, I have to finish with the climax of it all because this, really, uh, this really did uh, create a, a lifetime of, of aspiration and noble hope. Um, the uh, great movie, we, we all were dying to see the original Frankenstein from 1931 <clears throat> with Mae Clark and Colin Clive and obviously Edward Ben Sloan and uh, Boris Karloff, but the one that we had actually heard, we'd heard of it because it was sort of famous, didn't depend on us to be famous, you know, but uh, I often say that, that great art can come out of a recession. I used to say this at All Saints Chevy Chase, that uh, look at the great art that came out of the Great Depression. I mean, for example, The Bride of Frankenstein and... Um, uh, the Woman of Andros um, by uh, by uh, Thornton Wilder and uh, a number of other great works of art, I believe, that were produced uh, sometimes even uh, greater because they're in times of great difficulty. But The Bride of Frankenstein is a work of art, and I don't want to be all... Uh, uh, 
I don't want to be pretentious on you, but it's, it's really the greatest movie of its kind. And we knew it instantaneously when we saw it. We knew it within five seconds that this movie had something that none of the others did, although it fulfilled, it was sort of like Journey. It sort of brought the 1930s to a, to a culminating incarnate embodiment and fulfillment, and you really couldn't do anything better. You could do a lot of other good movies. I mean, we know Son of Dracula is great, House of Frankenstein, obviously, even The Wolfman, um, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, any number of, uh, of movies, uh, The Ghost of Frankenstein, which I happen to like. All the Universal didn't stop just with The Bride of Frankenstein by a long shot, but nonetheless they achieved something, partly through the brilliant direction of, uh, I almost said, the Reverend James Whale. I don't think he would have uh, liked that attribution, but he was such a funny guy, he might have laughed with me. And remember, there is one very definite Christian symbol that, in fact, Whale wanted to tone up. The censors toned it down, but there's one very specific and important Christian symbol and scene in Bride of Frankenstein. You find it, and it's not the beggar. It's not, I mean, it's not the blind man hermit. It's not the blind hermit scene, which is explicitly Christian. It's something else that happens. And you'll see it immediately, but in the original, Whale tried to tone it up and actually filmed it toned up with Karloff, but the censor said that's that might be wrongly construed, and sadly it was slightly watered down. But if you actually see the original Frankenstein, what struck us looking at it was the humor, the yammering of Una O'Connor we could do without, but the humor, the incredible music by whatever his name was, I want to say Waxman, uh, the incredible, sublime, um, Wagnerian ring of fire type of music that really works during the creation sequence, the dry and brilliant and odd wit of Dr. Pretorius, played by Ernst Thesiger, Ernest Thesiger, and the ex experience with the little men and the little king and the little queen and the little devil and the little princess and shepherd and in the bottles, the homunculi, that scene with this wonderful special effects done by the invisible guy, invisible uh, invisible man guy, Fulton. Uh, those, uh, that was new. We felt we were in something, it was something weird, something off the wall, something absurd and little funny. We, even we at age 11 got the humor and then the extraordinary scenes in the forest of him being chased. We thought the scene with the uh, blind hermit was sad, and it touched us very much. And we thought when he was tied up, the monster to a kind of cruciform, uh, like a crucifixion scene, was amazing. And then the escape, uh, and also the intro, the Lord Byron, Mary uh, Shelley, Elsa Lanchester, Percy Bysshe Shelley, a Mary Wollstonecraft thing, all that with the storm, that when the wonderful miniature of their castle in Switzerland, that felt very, very wonderful and like a whole nother world. But the great thing about it, was the Frankenstein himself. The, the extraordinary weight that Boris Karloff gives to the part, a humanistic weight, a touched weight, a compassionate weight, but also the... Uh, the anger, the strength, the power, and finally the confrontation with the bride who doesn't want him. And uh, then he blows it all up. Don't touch that lever, you'll blow us all to atoms. And then he says, we, you go, he says to Colin Clive and also Valerie Hobson, who later married Profumo, John Profumo. You, you go, we stay, we belong dead. And so... 
poor, bad, silly, ridiculous, uh, overly risking uh, Dr. Frankenstein, Colin Clive, and his wife, Valerie Hobson, uh, escape. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, escape, and the whole place comes down. And I just thought, this is heaven. Now, I had seen the Castle film 50-foot thing in a home birthday party when I was age nine, so I knew how it was going to end with that castle coming down. But my gosh, The Bride of Frankenstein, it has everything. It has humor, it has romance, it has spectacle, it has great acting, it has wonderful camera angles, it has tremendous machinery, it has a great story, it has wonderful music. There's nothing wrong with it at all. There's not a single wrong move except maybe the, the slightly overdone Irish act of Erna, Una O'Connor, and I'm even willing to say that's okay, because, hey, the whole thing is so good. Uh, we loved it, and Lloyd and I determined at that moment to never, uh, to never, um, to never uh, spend a year without seeing it once together. And although we didn't according to the letter of the law, fulfill that uh, blood brother promise. We have fulfilled it in the spirit of the law. I've seen it at least once every year since then, or the years when I haven't, I've seen it two or three times other years. And I know Lloyd in his heart has and does. And my most valuable possession I'm looking at right now, my most valuable inanimate possession. And here I, here I have in my hand a piece of paper from here. I have a, a right in my hand uh, dated February 1963 the climax of all this, which was a special surprise issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland with Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. And it says, New Photo Film Book, Bride of Frankenstein. And the issue is devoted almost entirely, our famous magazine, Famous Monsters of Filmland, to the Bride of Frankenstein. And it's wonderfully lavishly illustrated. And I have in my hand my original one, Exclusive and complete story in words and photos told in film book form of the creation of the monster's mate, Bride of Frankenstein, in this issue, plus FM's regular features. Well, um, if the color cover, there's something about it that is archetypal of her, the Bride of Frankenstein, with her famous electric swirl in her hair, and Boris Karloff, and she rejects him. It's so brilliant, and I'm holding it, but what makes it even better is that a few years later, really just about one year later, I think, um, Lloyd and I and Bill Bowman got to meet Forrest J. Ackerman, the uh, totemic, wonderful editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland. And on the front of this, uh, this issue, it says here, To Paul with Beast Wishes, Jim Warren. Jim Warren was the publisher of Famous Monsters of Filmland, who made an appearance at a, the World Science Fiction Convention uh, that was held uh, in uh, Washington in one summer. And then you open it up and you see these words, Forrest J. Ackerman, his autograph on my special copy of the surprise issue, February 1963, Famous Monsters of Filmland. So it all came together in the summer of, I think it was actually the summer of 65, but I may have that wrong, but I know it came together. And uh, maybe it'll come together with you. Maybe you'll see The Bride of Frankenstein. And even if you're not part of the anointed, even if you're a neophyte, if you've not ever joined this fraternity, you see The Bride of Frankenstein in light of what I've been talking about. And if it doesn't hook you, the child, the adult, any part of you, and all the congregation of yous who lives as a heavenly chorus of aspiration and hope and childlike desire for another world of gods and monsters, um, I'll be very surprised. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless.